You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 this morning. And as you're turning in your Bibles, uh, I just want you to... uh, Imagine this scenario with me. I want you to pretend that you that someone who didn't know anything about Jesus at all, just no prior knowledge, didn't even hear the name of Jesus, was given an assignment. And their assignment was to watch our church interact with one another and in the world for one week. Like this coming week. Their, their, their assignment is to watch our church this week. And then they're to write an article about who they think Jesus is, what they think Jesus has done, and, and what it means to follow him. And the only catch is that they're not allowed to speak directly to us, and we're not allowed to speak directly to them. In fact, we don't even know that they're here. Okay, They're, they're like behind a wall somewhere, and so they're observing, maybe through TV screens or something like that, uh, all of our interactions. And so they can listen to us interact with one another and with outsiders, uh, but, but they can't speak directly to us, and we can't speak directly to them. And so they get to sit in on our services. Uh, they get to listen to multiple conversations in the lobby as you leave from here. Uh, they, they get to follow you home and watch you interact with your family. They get to go to your gospel community meeting and and listen in on your kitchen conversations that you have around the snack table. And and they get to listen to your prayers uh, that you pray together. And they get to listen to your discussions around the word. And they get to listen in on the the mutual ministry time that you spend together. Um, they, they, They get to read the text that you send to other members in our church. And they get to hear the prayers that you pray for them. By the end of the week, what impression would this person have about who Jesus is, what he has done, and what it looks like to follow him? In our mission statement at Oak Hill, we say that we're here to proclaim Jesus, equip servants, and send witnesses. And a lot of times I think we we think about that word witnesses merely as like going door to door and knocking on doors and saying something about the gospel to unbelievers or maybe maybe inviting them to church or something like that. But I, I want you to understand that while that kind of thing or, or telling unbelievers about Jesus is tremendously important, we need to say something. Uh, don't hear me downplaying that, but but we're going to see that that What we say must be accompanied by what others see. Specifically, a a life that is lived in surrender to Jesus Christ. Today we're going to see that a, a church with an effective witness for Jesus is a church that shows the evidence of Christ's work that reflects his own life and his own work. The greatest argument for Christianity is the self-sacrifice of a church that's captivated by their Savior and Lord. And so here's what I pray would be true of Oak Hill. If if they were to watch our interactions for one week, that we would demonstrate the evidence of Christ's powerful work in his people to the world. That's our big idea for the morning. Uh, Demonstrate the evidence of Christ's powerful work in his people to the world. So we're working our way through a sermon series in the book of Philippians called Side by Side for the Gospel. And we've said that Paul's purpose in writing this letter and our purpose in studying it is that we would partner together in the pursuit of knowing and proclaiming Jesus. That's our goal. That's our vision, that we would grow more and more close together around that purpose, around that vision and so Paul is, is writing something like a missionary prayer letter to the church in Philippi. They, they've supported him in the past as a missionary. He wants them to continue walking side by side with him in the future. And he's exhorting them that they need to stand side by side together and with Christ 
if they're going to see the gospel advance to the ends of the earth like Jesus commanded. Last week we saw that in order to do that, they needed to embrace a side-by-side humility. That, that there were some minor divisions going on between them. Some selfish ambition was starting to creep in. Some vain glory seeking was there. Uh, they were putting themselves first rather than putting others first. And, and they needed to put off that self-focus. And they needed to put on the common mindset of Jesus Christ. The, the mindset of a humble servant. The passage that we're studying today is really the end of that section that we studied last week. It's the the result of pursuing humility in community. And so read with me in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a twisted, crooked and twisted generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul wants the Philippian church to stand out as saints in the world. He wants them to demonstrate the evidence of Christ's powerful work in his people to the world. And he says that the first piece of evidence that we present for Jesus is this. Exhibit A, responsive obedience. Responsive obedience. So Paul is calling them to here uh, at, at the beginning. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is calling them to a responsive obedience. At the beginning of verse 12, we, we read the word uh, therefore. And so what's the question that we always ask whenever we read the word therefore? Come on. Hey, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Let's try it one more time. What's the therefore, therefore? And therefore is always a word of response. It's always a word that signals that we need to go back and understand what was just written so that we can understand what he's about to write. This is a part of the section that started all the way back in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul exhorted them, uh, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Or in other words, uh, live like a citizen of heaven in a way that's consistent with the good news that Jesus has won the victory in your life. More specifically, everything in this section has been about how to live your life worthy of the gospel together in community. It's not so much about their personal walk or their personal evangelism that's that, that's going to play a role in all of this, but but it's more about their witness for Christ together as parts of a whole. What do they see when they see our whole church interacting with one another? Most recently, Paul has emphasized that their witness for Christ means that they need to have one mind. They need to have the, the mindset of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, humbled himself as a servant by becoming obedient to the point of death, who, who God highly exalted and, and placed upon him the name that is above every name. And so that's what brings us up to verse 12 and this word, therefore. Therefore, they are to obey. They are to obey what? Paul's 
Paul's teachings, what, what Paul is commanding them to hear in the context, and really they're obe to obey him because they are to obey Christ. Remember, the apostles were just carrying out the great commission that Jesus had given them to teach the disciples to obey all that Christ commanded. Obedience was right there in what it means to make disciples. And so Paul says, as you have always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, does that seem like different? To anyone, but like, like all this talk of obedience and working in relationship to our salvation. But like, doesn't Ephesians 2 say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast? And, and doesn't like Titus 3 say, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And so, like, what's the deal with all this work out your own salvation stuff? Like, Paul, are you going, like, weird on us? I'm, I'm glad you're wondering. Because we can tend to go to one of two extremes with this. Some people run to one extreme, and they're like, Obey! Stop using that blasphemous word. We're saved by grace. You don't need to talk about obedience. That's, that's works. That's, you don't talk about that stuff. Others go to this other extreme and they, they, they say, look, see, we work for our salvation. Work is a part of your salvation. You can't have any hope that you are saved until you get to the end of your life and you see you're good enough. And so which is it? Is this a contradiction in Paul? Well, we're going to see that it's neither. And in one sense, it's both. Wait, what are you talking about, Pastor Ben? Our problem is that we tend to look at salvation from only one perspective. So it's like this curtain rod, okay? Our salvation is like this curtain rod. And if I hold this curtain rod out to you and you look at it just from one angle right and you you only see the very end you're just looking at one point on the curtain rod and, and a lot of people look at this end and they, they see uh the point of our salvation and they think you know okay uh, my, my salvation that's the point of my conversion and, and as long as i said that i have a faith in jesus that, that i'm saved by grace through faith and it really doesn't matter it doesn't have to have any effect on how i live my life right now they just look at this one point as the idea of salvation. Other people look at this other point as the idea of salvation, and they look at merely our glorification. The time that our faith has made sight and we're brought into glory with Jesus. And that's the only time that I can know if I've actually put my faith in Jesus is when I get to the end of my life, I'm standing before the judgment seat of God, and I can say I was good enough. I worked hard enough. But if I turn the curtain rod sideways, you can see that salvation is much more than either one of those two points. Salvation is, yes, I have to come to faith in Christ, and I am saved by grace through faith. And salvation is, yes, I am glorified. And, 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 and at one point, God is going to clothe me in, in white, and he's in white robes that are, that are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And salvation is every moment where we access the grace of God by faith in between. It's so important that we have this understanding of salvation that it is all of this and not just one of this. All of it is a, a work of God. He saves us. He will save us. And he has saved us by his power alone, by his grace alone, at work through faith alone, in Christ alone, from beginning to the end. 
And so we work as a response of faith to God's saving grace in all of it. When, when Paul says, obey, and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he's saying, live out God's saving work in your life. Live out what you believe about Jesus and what he has done. The evidence of salvation right now in your life is responsive obedience. A, a lot of people are, are like, well, how do I know that I believed enough? How do I know I have faith enough? The question is, do I believe right now, and am I going to respond out of that faith? It's simply a question of faith in this moment and how that faith is responding. The word that is used for obey is used for responding to a knock at the door. Okay, so somebody knocks at the door and I go to answer it, I'm obeying that knock. I'm responding in action because I know that there's someone at the door who needs to get in. Paul also uses the word in Romans 1.5 to refer to the obedience of faith. In other words, the, the actions of obedience that respond to what we confess that we believe. The evidence of saving faith is responsive obedience. And so in this context, what, what is Paul writing about that, that we believe and respond to in obedience? Remember the word therefore, right? That's connecting it all, right? So, so first, the, the response of faith, obedience is a response of faith to Christ's obedient example. Christ's obedient example. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we believe in a Savior who set the example for obedience. The Son of God responded to the will of God in obedience. And even though, with respect to his humanity, he had an aversion to physical pain and spiritual separation that the cross would be, he said, not my will, but yours be done. His divine will was one with the will of the Father, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To believe in Jesus is to believe that he did that for you and for me. If Jesus wasn't obedient, we don't have salvation. And so let me ask you this. Would it make any sense to say, I believe in Jesus who obeyed the will of God for my salvation, but I don't need to think about obeying God in my own life? Would that make any sense? No. But that's what people do all the time, especially in our everyone's a Christian culture. You, you can't say, uh, sure, I, I believe in Jesus, like I, I guess I've always believed, but then show no evidence of, of, of that Jesus means anything to you in your life. You can't say, I believe in a Savior whose obedience and death made the way for me to have life, but I don't really care about how he says that life should be lived. There has to be a repentance. It starts in what we believe about Jesus, and then it results in our actions and attitudes walking out in obedience. So many in our culture think that they have saving faith because they, they said they believed in Jesus sometime. But, but their version of Jesus in their minds looks nothing like the real Jesus that's described in Philippians chapter 2. And they prove that they don't know him because they don't even want to obey him. Our, our obedience is a response of faith to Christ's obedient example. But that's not the only thing our obedience is responding to. Obedience is the response of faith to Christ's supreme exaltation. 
It's even more immediate in the context. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so imagine saying, I believe in Jesus, which is saying, I believe that he is the supreme Lord that, that every knee will bow before, but then saying, but I don't think I need to obey him. Like, like, that's, that's ludicrous. That makes no sense at all. But when we really ponder what we believe about Jesus, when we gaze upon him as the risen and reigning Lord, when we think about the work that he's done to rescue us from our sin, like we sang about in Worthy of Your Name, like all of those things that Jesus is to us, when, when we consider that, that word salvation itself, which means to be rescued from harm, and we consider that we have been snatched out of the death grip of Satan, the destroyer of our souls, and, and we've been given new life in union with Christ. And when we think about the superiority of a life lived in Christ, it only makes sense to respond in obedience. Now remember, I am not saying that we work for our salvation. We work out the salvation that God gives. Remember Paul's words in 128, he couldn't be more clear that our salvation was from God. We work out of the faith that has responded to God's gracious work. And so obedience is the response of faith to Christ's gracious empowerment. Look at the second half of verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That fear and trembling, by the way, is related to the, the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is God, I'm not. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Our salvation is, is not dependent on our ability to perform for God or to perfectly obey. Our salvation is dependent upon our willingness to trust and surrender to the power of God to save us, to the power of God to keep saving us until the very end. It is God who awakens our hearts to faith at conversion. It is God who saves us at the day of glorification. And it is God who works in us. That word means he empowers us to live by faith every moment in between. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 1. He said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so if you have put your Faith in Jesus. You've truly put your faith in Jesus. Then God is finishing the work that he started. He's empowering your obedience actively and personally. He's going to get all of this accomplished. He's going to work in you actively and personally to produce his results. Paul says that he works in us to both will and to work. So first, he, he works to shape and empower our will. God shapes our desires and our motivations as we dwell upon his word as we cry out to him, as the Holy Spirit brings conviction in our hearts. His power is at work shaping our will, and then he's working in us to work. He's energizing new activity of obedience. He's, he's giving us everything that we need to serve him, the, the physical strength, the mental capacity, the spiritual resilience. It's all coming from him, and you can be confident in that fact this morning. It's, it's the work of our faith. It's the obedience of our 
faith, we trust, we turn from trusting in ourselves and we're turning to trusting in God and that is how we go about obeying. I love as Paul calls them to obedience. He gives them confidence. This whole verse, he's been infusing them with confidence. And so he starts out by calling them beloved. He's like, my dear friends, my, my loved ones. And then he's like, God is working in you. I, I see the evidence, I've seen it with my own eyes. When I was there with you, I saw it. And much more in my absence, just keep doing it. Keep following Jesus. Keep relying upon him. Don't let anything change your obedience. And then he continues and he says, God is the one who works in you. And this is so important. If we're going to stand side by side in our witness and we're going to hold one another accountable to obedience to Christ, we need to express our confidence that God is at work in each other's lives. It's like parents who, who trust their teenagers while they go away for the weekend, right? And, and right before they leave, they have this little conversation with the teenager. They're like, look, we trust we, we, we've seen your, your good behavior. We trust that you're able to obey us. That's why we're even leaving and leaving you alone right now. But we want to keep encouraging you obey while we're away. Like, don't give up on that. Don't have a party now all of a sudden. Don't, don't switch character on us. Keep obeying. We can express that kind of trust in one another because we know it's God who finishes the work that he starts. Isn't that so encouraging to you? Like too often our, our versions of accountability for obedience sound more like this. Like, you said you were going to obey. You, you better or, or else. Like you're, or else you're going to have to deal with my peer pressure or else I'm going to expose you for your shame, or else you might not be a believer. Listen, there can be a, a place for questioning someone's faith after persistent evidence of unbelief. That's why Jesus gave us church discipline, right? There's a process for that in the scriptures, but that can't be our normal posture towards one another. The normal posture says to one another, obey Jesus because I've seen God's evidence of his work in your life already and I know that he's going to keep working in you till the end. Can I just encourage you? If God in his grace gives you the opportunity to see someone else's sin, and he gives you the opportunity to be used as a tool in the life of someone else for their transformation, make sure that you express your confidence that God is at work in them to finish what he started. God is so eager to empower his people to live out their saving faith. It is his own good pleasure to do so. He's like a Chick-fil-A worker. God, 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 can you help me obey? My pleasure. Is there an area of your life that God has been calling you to respond in obedience? Especially as we've been thinking about what we've been talking about the past few weeks. Like maybe you've been kind of focused on your own agenda or your own desires and, and God's been calling you to partner with his people in pursuit of knowing and proclaiming Jesus and you've been just kind of putting it off, resisting him in some way like, yeah, maybe I'll get to that later. Maybe, maybe I'll make that decision down the road sometime. Maybe you've been allowing fear or, or frustration about your circumstances to control you. And, and God's been calling you out the, the past few weeks to, to live out your faith, to live like, to live as Christ and to die as gain. 
And he's been calling you to obey him in that way. Maybe, maybe you've been acting out in pride and, and God has been calling you these past few weeks to humble yourself so that you can live with unity in Christ's church. Respond to your faith in obedience. That's exhibit A, that Christ is working in his people. Now, in the context, that, that obedience is going to specifically play out in their humility toward unbelievers. Uh, that's why he continues in verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Their, their obedience would result in this second evidence of Christ's powerful work in his people. Uh, exhibit B, radical unity. Now, don't worry, we're not going to spend that much time on all four of these. I felt like that was the one that you, we really needed to make sure that we nailed. But exhibit B is radical unity. Remember the context. Uh, Paul is calling them to, to be of the same mind, to have the mindset of Christ, to, to have the same love, to be of one a full accord and of one mind. And if they're going to do that, they needed to put a hard stop to grumbling and disputing. These words, grumbling, disputing, are meant to call our minds back to the Old Testament when the Israelites grumbled and complained against Moses and against the Lord as they lived in the desert, in the wilderness, in the exodus, after the exodus from Egypt. And they, they forgot that the Lord had brought them out of slavery and that he had used Moses in the past and so they didn't trust him to lead them into the promised land in the future. And so over and over again, the, the scriptures point to this grumbling as an evidence of hardness of heart, of unbelief. The, the word grumbling implies the, the sinful tendency to cop an attitude whenever expectations aren't met. So you, you've been serving in ministry, and the deacon in charge of that ministry says that, or I'm sorry, they, they didn't do something that you thought they should do, or they, they said something that you thought they shouldn't say. And, and so you think to yourself, like, like, can you believe this guy? Like, can you believe what they expect me to do in this church? Do, do they seriously want me to work under these circumstances? Or maybe you're a leader and the people you're leading just aren't responding the way that you want them to. And, and instead of actually leading, you get frustrated and you say, like, like, how can God expect me to lead these people? You read about Moses doing that a couple times, actually, right? Grumbling is usually uh, behind the scenes. Maybe by yourself or your spouse or your kids. Maybe, maybe to a few select friends. It's more of a, a murmur than a fight. The word disputing is more of the external fight. It means constantly arguing about your opinions and putting your own thoughts first. It can also mean doubting or anxious reasoning. So this could be someone who, who just never trusts the direction of the leaders in their church and, and they're always needing to make their dissent known. Now, now listen, I'm not saying that leaders should never be questioned or sh you should never ask questions. In fact, in our church, we probably need a few more questions sometimes, like especially at meetings, like you can ask questions. But Paul is talking about making the assumption that you are always right and they are always wrong and then having an argumentative spirit because of that. It's the way that you ask that question like, you don't know anything. Well, I'm going to ask a question to show how wrong you are. That attitude needs to be brought into submission to Christ for the sake of unity. This could also be leaders who are, are trying to kind of force their way upon the church. And even if it doesn't have foundation in God's word, a qualification for elders is that they not be quarrelsome. They're to avoid unnecessary arguments that are rooted in preferences and opinions rather than in the Word of God. So we are to pursue radical unity by avoiding grumbling and disputing. That's the powerful evidence of God's work in us. And let me just say at this point, like, when I talk to other pastors about grumbling and disputing in their own churches, like, if we had a grumbling and disputing meter, 
I'm really grateful for where we're at on the meter on that one at Oakdale. I hear some things here and there, but on, on the whole, God has provided us immense unity. And honestly, that's probably where the Philippian church was as well. If we, if we look at the evidence from within the, the book itself, uh, they have a few things going on. But Paul is able to point out two main offenders, which means that it's not really widespread yet. <laughs> this is kind of more of a, a warning that, that tiny seeds of discord that we sow can grow into big problems in our witness later on. To watch even the small things. Because grumbling and disputing are, are, are right at home in our sin nature. Pursuing unity is what's radical. Think about the rest of the world who, who doesn't know Jesus. We are at a point in our society of extreme polarization. Grumbling and disputing are the native tongue of the public sphere right now, right? And so... How much more will it stand out and point others to Jesus when we stand together, united in him? When the world sees us laying down our own preferences and our rights for the sake of unity in Christ, how much more is that going to stand out when we show grace to one another instead of canceling one another for disagreeing with us? That's radical unity that is going to show in our world. But it's also radical to our own sin nature. And I think we can all be prone to grumble or dispute. Some of us are probably more prone to grumble. To, to murmur and complain in a more like under the breath kind of way. Some of us are more prone to outright dispute. To make our complaints known and to try to force our own way. It just takes the right thing to set us off either of those directions. So let me ask you, what topic are you most prone to, dis to grumble and dispute about? What's the thing, this is really dangerous, what's the thing in our church that frustrates you the most? Now, before you dwell on that, I want you to take a moment right now praying right in the middle of the service to surrender that thing to God, okay? It's right now. If you have something that frustrates you or something came to mind, just pray about that right now. Trust the Lord to work through his church produces purposes. Trust that forbearing and forgiving and loving and seeking harmony is more powerful than always getting your own way. And I'll guarantee you, the world is going to notice a church that is united when everyone else is divided. That's what Paul says in the rest of verse 15. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the world word of life. The context here shows that our obedience and our unity are part of our witness in the world. They lead to this third evidence of saving faith, uh, radiant purity. Radiant purity. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. That word that is so important, that you may be blameless and innocent. Grumbling and disputing keep us from pursuing what is really important. That is radiant purity. See, we grumble because we are turned inward, focused on our own sinful present, uh, preferences and desires that aren't going satisfied. We, we dispute because we start turning outward against the preferences and desires of others. But when we put off those desires of the flesh 
and we turn our hearts upward to the desires of Christ, we become blameless and innocent, radiantly pure, because we're pursuing our Savior together. The word blameless means that we're above reproach. The world cannot throw an accusation at us that will stick, except that we live by faith in Jesus Christ. The word innocent means that we are pure. We are unstained by continual patterns of sin. We walk with integrity, consistent with the gospel we proclaim. We are consistent about putting off the desires of the flesh and putting on the desires of the spirit. That's our calling, church. That we would not be defined by sin, but that we would be defined by our relationship with God. Notice what he says, that we are blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. When we put our faith in Jesus, God makes us his children. And contrary to, to popular opinion, not everyone is God's child. If you've been reading in our reading plan in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, the Bible says that, that apart from Jesus, we are by nature children of wrath. Here in Philippians 2.15, Paul says that each generation is twisted and crooked. Each, each generation is marked by a new way of twisting up God's design, of, of distorting his beauty, of, of throwing off his standards. We destroy what is meant to be pure and blameless, staining it by our sinful desires and passions. But in God, in His grace at work through faith, we are saved to become His children. And it's out of that identity that we grow in his righteousness. I, I used this analogy the first week in this series that, that we're growing up to look like our heavenly father. We have all of the spiritual DNA that, it, that we need to become blameless and innocent. We, we receive that at the, at the point of conversion. We receive the Holy Spirit. We're washed by the blood of the Son. We're counted righteous in Christ. We simply need to surrender to his leading and, and, and live those things out, fully relying upon him, believing that his desires are best and acting accordingly. In the midst of a, a twisted and crooked generation, living as children of God is going to stand out. We're going to look different. We're going to shine as lights in the world. But, but how do we produce that kind of radiant purity in our lives? Because I don't know about you, but I am fully aware that sin still exists in my heart. I, I am fully aware that every single day I deal with sin. And, and so how do we put off the works of darkness and shine as lights? How do we produce this kind of radiant purity? We do it, Paul says, by holding fast to the word of life. Instead of grumbling and disputing, we hold fast to the word of life. The word of life is a reference to the gospel. And if we're going to live like lights, and if God is our power source, then the word of life is the switch that allows the power to flow to the light bulb. We need to make sure that the switch is constantly in the on position. We need to hold fast to the gospel we need to remind ourselves, remind each other of the gospel that saves us. Remember, this is a command to the church together. They are to shine as lights, plural. As David read this morning, we are a city on a hill together that cannot be hidden. And so they needed to hold fast to that gospel together. That's why we don't have time for grumbling and complaining. Because we need to use all of that energy and pour it into sharing the gospel with one another. This is one of our goals for the fall, that we would hold fast to the gospel through consistent gospel community. Dwight prayed about it earlier. So let me ask, how's that going for you? I know some people still need to get plugged into a gospel community. But don't drag your feet on that. Make that a priority in the next two weeks. You're only hindering your own growth by waiting. Some of us need to deepen our connections within our gospel communities. 
We, we need to get real that we're struggling with some things that are keeping us from blameless purity. We, we need to confess where we are tempted to sin so that we can be encouraged to put off sin and put on the radiance of Christ. We need to challenge others to that same kind of vulnerability and then meet them where they're at with the beautiful truth of the gospel that makes us pure. Some of us need to increase our consistency in connecting outside our scheduled gathering. Remember, Hebrews 3 says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And we need each other every day because we are tempted to sin every day. So this week, our, our gospel communities are not scheduled to meet, right? We're not calling it an off week because there are no off weeks. And so you got to pursue this purposefully. How are you going to connect with somebody from your gospel community to encourage them and be encouraged in holding fast to the word of life? But call someone up and pray for them. Grab a cup of coffee together. Spend time thanking God for them and then text them and let them know that you thank God for them. When we hold, help one another, when we help one another hold fast to the word of life, we are going to shine as lights in this dark world with radiant purity. And Christ will be glorified by a beautiful bride at his return. Really, that's what Paul wants to see. That, that's what I long to see as a Pastor, that's why I pour myself out for this, that the gospel would be proclaimed and have its effect in our lives. That's, that's the only thing that we're going for together as a church. And so look at the end of verse 16. Paul says that they hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul longs to see the evidence of their responsive obedience and their radical unity and their radiant purity because in the end, he knows it's going to produce this fourth evidence of Christ's power, resilient sacrifice. Resilient sacrifice. Remember, as Paul writes this letter, he's under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman guard, and he says, you know, you know what's going to make this all worth it for me? Not if I get out and start living the good life and my best life now. He says, you know what's going to make this all worth it for me? It's if I see you holding fast to the gospel until the very end. It will make it all worth it. If the world gets to see the gospel's power through you until the day that Jesus returns. For Paul, if, if the Philippian church was just some conversion statistic because they prayed a prayer or walked an aisle and it didn't change them, it wouldn't have been worth it. If they had just gone through the motions of coming to church and, and a really big crowd had gathered uh, uh, full of unchanged people, he would have labored in vain. But he says, if you sacrifice your life because of your faith in the gospel that I preach, then I will know that my own sacrifice was worth it. Paul says, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering, in other words, even if I give up everything for the sake of demonstrating Christ's power through the world, if I know that my sacrifice is joined with your sacrifice of faith, then I can rejoice. That was the evidence to Paul that their faith had taken root. Resilient sacrifice. Faith that doesn't stop when the cost feels too high. And I can totally understand what Paul is saying here. And maybe you can too. Because ministry can feel like a constant outpouring of your soul. And the evidence that it is worth it isn't always this immediate like, there's the finished product. You're pouring yourself out in relationship. You, you see someone take a few steps forward, then a few steps back, and, and, and you invest time and energy and love, and then they say something that bites you and hurts. Sometimes the sheep bite. And you wonder if it's worth it. 
But then you look to your left. And you look to your right. And you see the evidence of other people joining in that work with you. Sacrificing because of their faith in the gospel. There is something so encouraging about that. When I see our elders and our deacons and our ministry servants taking hold of their faith to the degree that they sacrifice their time and their talents and their treasures for the sake of the gospel, there's incredible joy in that, church. Thank you for producing that joy in me so many times. There's joy in standing side by side for the gospel. It's a joy that keeps us going together. And so Paul expresses his joy, and then he invites them in and says, reciprocate that joy with me. He says, I'm finding joy in this whole sacrifice for Jesus thing. You should try it. Look for the evidences of of resilient sacrifice in the people around you. Partner together in the pursuit of knowing and proclaiming Jesus and then experience the joy of sacrificing together. A church that sacrifices together is a church where Christ's power is evident. And so let's return to the scenario from the beginning of the sermon. If someone observed our church interact over the course of any given week, what would they learn about Jesus? What evidence of his power would they see in us? Would they see responsive obedience and learn that he was obedient to the point of death and that he is Savior and Lord over all? Would they see radical unity because we're willing to lay down our own desires for the desires of Christ. They see radiant purity because we are holding fast to the gospel together. And would they see resilient sacrifice because Jesus has become our life and his gospel means everything to us. You See the evidence in your life. Do you see it in our church? If if so, rejoice and be glad. There's room for that. And if not, go back and seek the God who powerfully works in you, both to will and to work. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.